Hello, everyone, and welcome to Crossing the LD, a show completely focused on veterans transitioning from military to civilian life. Our show is powered by Pivotal Moments, a nonprofit on a mission to strengthen mental fitness for all. Go check them out at pivotalmoments.org to learn more. I'm Lee Elias, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Howie Cohen, and we are privileged today to have Becky Margiata with us. Becky served as a signal officer from 1991 to 2000 in the U.S. Army, where she held various company-grade officer positions that included platoon leader, battalion adjutant, company commander, and detachment commander. And after separating from the military, Becky briefly spent some time as a stockbroker before diving into what would become an incredible philanthropic journey that spanned several organizations which included her serving as the Director of Innovations with Breaking Ground and the Director of the 100,000 Homes Campaign. Both of those organizations have a shared mission to create housing for the underserved, among other initiatives. She's the co-founder of the Social Change Agency, which provided retreat facilitation and leadership coaching designed to enable social change leaders uh, to have more impact. And from 2014 until now, she has served as the principal and owner of the Billions Institute, whose mission it is to help leaders scale solutions to the world's biggest problems at record-breaking speeds. She is the definition of a trailblazer to Howie and I, and she's been interviewed by Anderson Cooper for 60 Minutes, and now she's here with us. Becky, welcome to the show. Hey, Lee, thanks for having me. Howie, good to see you. Real honor to be here. Awesome. Yeah, the pleasures are. So diving right into the first question, Becky, you have a very unique and fascinating resume that starts with military service. And as a West Point graduate and highly successful Army signal officer, how has your time working in the military shaped you and helped you become the successful, uh, becoming successful, excuse me, since you transitioned from the Army in 2000? It's such a good question, and it's it's difficult to distill 13 years into right. a pithy response. But I have a couple. We only give on you that. 60 seconds for this response. <laughs> no, just, take take as get, much time as you want. <laughs> let me let me get let me get that out. And and not only that, not only 13 years, but 13 years in the the formative years of your life. You know, 13 right. years of, of I guess I was like 18 to 30, right? And so uh, 17 to 30. So. From the very first day at West Point, it was inexplicably to, to me at, at the time, uh, I was imbued with the, the, the weight of responsibility of life or death decisions. And, and literally, I'll tell you that if my, tooth, if my toothbrush and my toothpaste were facing the wrong way in the medicine cabinet, it wasn't that I wasn't following orders or I didn't have good attention to detail. It was that I didn't have good attention to detail, and that's going to get somebody killed. And... Wow. As an 18-year-old, I was like, wow, that's kind of intense about some toothpaste. <laughs> but that's part of the, the whole indoctrination, is, and especially is in the training to, to become an officer, your, your decisions and your choices and your actions could potentially have life or death consequences for other people. And, and, and that weightiness um, doesn't go away, even though now my decisions don't as clearly have life or death consequences, right? There's just a... How, at a very young age, an awareness of, of the importance of, of taking responsibility. So that's, that's one. If you want to jump in, right. I don't want, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the other one that's just un, 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 unequivocally came from the military, Mike, the experiences I had was a, a, a toughening up in some ways of mental, physical, and emotional perseverance, and, and a never quit. And, and right. I mean, I played soccer before, you know, I was, a, 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 I had endurance, <laughs> but, <laughs> but the experiences that I had in the military, um, 
really dialed in for me. Uh, and, uh, uh, once I'm committed to something, I never, I'll, I'll never quit. And, I, and, and the, the gist of it, everyone who served in the military knows mission first, soldiers always, troops always. And it's just, we don't, th- that, got, that got put in my DNA. And and uh, right. and it's so relevant in the civilian world. Yeah. Well, hey, Becky, I, I just want to share with the audience that that I had the absolute and I do mean absolute privilege and, and honor to have served with you two different times throughout my military career. One, when I was commanding the 112 Signal Battalion, um, you started as the uh, the battalion adjutant or S1. So you sat right outside my office was where, where I got to first to get to know you and, and get to really appreciate what you had to offer as a leader, as a soldier, and, and more importantly, just as a person, uh, which is why I selected you to be the uh, the commander of Bravo Company, which happened to be the company I commanded years years before that in, uh, in the 112th. And then when I left the battalion to go on to another um, 05 level command, um, and as we were hunting for quality signal officers, quality communicators to work in a very unique special operations uh, environment, um, one of the first folks that came to my mind that we should recruit and put through our selection and assessment process was you. And, uh, and I watched a number of people go through that process and not make it. And it's not because they weren't exceptional people. It's, uh, the, the term I typically describe it is we were looking for a, a high-performing Dalmatian with 100 spots, and you could be a high-performing Dalmatian with 99 spots or 101 spots, but that wasn't the right Dalmatian. We were looking for one with 100 spots, and, and that was you. You successfully made it through the selection assessment process and then thrived as a detachment commander in, in this very unique uh, environment, and which continued to build my personal um, uh, esteem for you as an officer, as a leader, and again, as a person. Um, you chose to leave the military after about nine years of service. And, and uh, one thing that might be helpful for, for our audience to understand is, is why you chose to, to move on from the military. And, and more importantly, how you prepared yourself for your transition into, civil, into the civilian world. Um, I think that would be helpful. And, and then um, what I'd also like to, to, to you to share is if looking back on what you know now, if you had it to do over again, is there anything you would have done differently to prepare or execute your transition, you know, given the experience that you've gained over the years? Because I think where our audience can really benefit is the kind of transition advice someone like you can provide to, to them to help them successfully move into a, some form of civilian um, uh some form of a civilian employment? Those are all great questions. And I'll tell you, the honor was all mine to get to serve with you, Howie. And even getting to command Bravo Company, I knew it was really special because it was the company that you had commanded as well. There's a, a proud lineage that um, real honor to be a part of. Uh, we'll be proud of that for the rest of my life. Um, so, so in terms of my decision to get out of the Army, I, I'll take you to a moment that you, you were at Howie, but you didn't know what was going on in the inside for me, but it was the job interview for that second command or for that, that second unit. And it was um, about 15 people or so interviewing me. And one of the questions was something along the lines was, what was my greatest failure? Pretty typical interview question. Um, and instantly what came through to me in, on the other side of that interview was how disappointed my dad was when I came out as gay. 
And so that was the answer. And I was exhausted. <laughs> you know, I was exhausted as a human being and had very little, I think, emotional filter or whatever. And I remember just uh, getting emotional and, and crying and being like, oh, Jesus, now I'm crying at a job interview, you know, just really feeling uh, awful about the whole situation and really kind of just emotionally raw and broke down. Um, and, and I knew because of the, in the military, you weren't allowed to be out as gay, that I couldn't tell the truth with these people who I had no other reason not to tell the truth to, you know, I mean, it's like, of course, what, what me also feeling in a situation where I couldn't just say, well, this is my answer. I feel like that would have actually been a perfectly acceptable answer, but for that one policy. And, um, so that, that really haunted me, not being able to tell the truth in that moment. I'm not saying that's like why I quit or anything, but like that type of experience is emblematic of the kinds of experience I feel like I had. Um, meanwhile, while I was in that interview, I was, uh, didn't have any access to the news or the media or anything, but it was the same month that Matthew Shepard had been murdered in Wyoming for being gay. As I came out, I learned about that and I was like, this is not okay. This is, there's, there's people are killing gay people. And, and a couple months later, or I think a couple years later, Barry Winchell was murdered on Fort Campbell for having, um, I think his significant other was trans, uh, trans, a trans woman. And, uh, and I just looked around and I was like, I can't not tell the truth about this. And, and the straw that broke the camel's back was, um, I went to the studio theater in DC to see a one act play called another American asking and telling one night while, while I, was, I was in that second command. And it was one person who did a one act play of Matthew Shepard's mom and Barry Winchell's mom. And, and uh, the next day I went in and I turned in my paperwork. I was like, I just can't lie about this anymore because my lying is, is complicit with, with other people's murder. And so I know that's probably grandiose, but I was just, I was just unwilling to do that anymore. Um, and uh, I did not really have a plan B. I was thoroughly ill-prepared. I knew nothing uh, since I'd been out of high school other than the military way of life and uh, had, had no preparation whatsoever. I think at one point I had read The 100 Best Places to Work. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, maybe Patagonia would hire me. Um, but uh, oddly, now I'm friends with the CEO of Patagonia, uh, Rose Mercurial, although I have no confidence whatsoever that she would hire me at this point. Um, and uh, um, I, was, I, I had a really uh, difficult transition to, transition to civilian life uh, that I think involved a mild depression, uh, some career floundering, uh, and, and uh, I, I, you, you had asked if there's anything that I could offer to others. Um, uh, if I had a do-over, what would I do differently in that? And um, it took a couple years, honestly, but I think what I would recommend to any veteran transitioning, one would be to, to hold on to your sense of selfless service like it's a life raft, you know, that, like it, like that, like it's a life preserver. Like, do not, do not let go of whatever sense of selfless service you have, and allow that to guide your second, your subsequent career choices. the The second piece of advice I have is to to don't lowball yourself in any way. That veterans are desperately needed in the civilian workforce. That the qualities and and character that veterans have. Are, are tremendously of value and of service, regardless of what you did. I promise you there is a need for that. So you can do anything. And I'm, and my parents always told me that growing up too, like, Becky, you can do anything. 
I think at this point, I probably couldn't be the first nun in space. But like, other than that, I think most things are still on the table. And so you could do just about any. I had a sister that wanted to be the first nun in space. Um, and then the last thing I would share is get linked up with other veteran organizations and start that even now. And so through when I worked on homelessness, I got involved with this uh, Got Your Six collaborative. And through that, I met Team Rubicon. And the mission continues at Red, White, and Blue. And the people I worked with on Got Your Six, Chris Marvin, continues to be involved with Moms Demand Action. There's this whole group of veterans working to uh, with this idea that a lot of the gun violence we see is because civilians don't have anywhere near of the training with weapons that military people do. It's irresponsible. Um, and so th- th- there's just tons of camaraderie that you can continue and find ways of being service with these just stellar veterans organizations um, that have really inspired me that I want everyone to know about too. You know, Becky, in a minute, um, Howie and I are going to dive into kind of the work you've done since, but I want to comment on a couple of things. One is that you had, you had kind of joked that you hope that doesn't sound grandiose before. It, it sounds brave to me. That's the only word that pops in my head. Um, the other thing I want to comment on is, you know, we've done multiple episodes on this and for the listening audience, um, this is now the fourth time in a row, you know, we've heard about the transition and to trust your training, right? To trust the mission first attitude that you're bringing something to the table that, uh, you know, organizations often don't see, and you shouldn't be shy about talking about that. Right. Um, and everybody we've talked about in their transition from my wife to you, it's very similar. I didn't know that I could trust that, uh, process. Right. Uh, the other thing, as you said, is the selfless service. Um, every person I've known in the military, whether they're in or out, that has held on to that uh, is in some way successful, right? And they have an understanding. And again, from a civilian point of view, uh, I remember I was talking with a combat controller one time, and, and I thought I found this to be very unique. Uh, you know, I, I had asked him, you know, what is it like? when you come back to the States and, you know, for lack of a better word, people really could care less about what you've been doing, right. To, to keep us safe. And he said, the greatest thing I think I'd ever heard, it really defined, uh, selflessness to me. Uh, but it also impacted how I approach my work, whether it's in sports or business, he said, I'm doing it so they don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was, that was a very impactful moment for me. I, I was like, man, that is selfless service. He's not doing mm-hmm. it for recognition. And not that I, not that I think he should have been, and I still like to recognize military whenever we can, obviously, but, um, man, that attitude is an asset, a, a complete mm-hmm. asset to any company that's willing to understand how powerful it is. And I just wanted to reiterate that for the audience, because uh, I think a lot of people transitioning don't realize how big of an asset that is. And, and you've applied it to, to your work. And again, go ahead, Howie, I know you've got some of these questions here, but no, no just it's, to a, it's, a, it's a great, it's a great point to bring out Lee. And, and, and so Becky, I actually want to kind of delve into that a little bit deeper. And, and I think some of it started with your, your military training, but certainly the work you've done in, in the not-for-profit space. And I'm gonna, I want to ask you a little bit about that more here in a second, but I really want to bring out this concept because look, if, if, as I look at what I would define as a transformational leader, I think of someone like you. Um, you have taken a significant amount of risk in the number of things you've done. And, um, and I know you have strong feelings about transformational leadership. So what I think might be helpful to is maybe just define what a trans- transformational leader is to you. And, and, and maybe some of the things that, that, that someone who wants to make a difference can do to, 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 to guide and, and, and help transformation occur around them. Yeah. So when, you know, 
I, I think of transformational leadership as being uh, in contrast to transactional leadership, right? So transactional leadership is you do this, I'll give you that, uh, you'll get a bonus or it's carrots and sticks. I think transactional leadership is carrots and sticks leadership. And I just have very little interest in that. And, and there may be time and place for that, but I've, I've yet to really see where there's a lot of, where that does a lot of good. The transformational leadership, the textbook definition is, is eluding me at the moment, but, but the gist of it, I think, is through relationship, through quality time, which is one of the five love languages, through quality time, the, the leadership uh, is, is, trans, is transferred through relationship in such a way that the follower is transformed, that they, they're, they're, there's a values exchange that can be reciprocal, that there's, um, uh, there's a modeling, there's, there's a, an authenticity in it where uh, through the relationship, through the doing together, the follower is, is a different person on the other side. And, and I'll say that both from the, the commissioned officers and non-commissioned officers that I had the privilege of working with in the military, I was the, was the, was the follower in that case of getting to work for people like Howie, Jan Hicks, work with people like Mark, Mark Clifton. <laughs> you, you know who's on the side of the transformational leadership with the Mark Clifton, right? Was, I was picking up stuff from him every day. And, uh, it, it, and I hope that I continue to do that with others. And I think that the real, the key is, is a willingness to invest in quality time with the, with, with the people who are following you and, and a willingness to talk about the underlying values, like what's behind the decision, not what's the right decision, but what's behind right. the decision and why. Yeah. And hey, I have so, people willing to do that with yeah. me. Yeah. So, so Becky, if you don't mind, you, you bring up Mark Clifton. And I'm hoping actually to get Mark and AC as a duo on, on oh, this podcast. God. It's just a matter of locking those guys down. I think they'll, they'll have such tremendous value uh, to add to our audience. Uh, uh, We're going to send it, him this clip, too. Yeah, well, what, what did AC <laughs> used to say is like, I thought you were dead. <laughs> <laughs> so so for, for, for our audience, um, uh, those of you who may be familiar with, with, with the military, each service has a set of values that they, they espouse. And, and in the Army, it's based on an acronym for leadership. And um, so uh, as you look at the acronym leadership, the I in leadership is for integrity. And, if, and they actually made posters for each of the values. And if you look at the, 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 the poster for integrity, it's actually a Staff Sergeant Clifton, who was the um, um, drill, drill sergeant, sergeant of the year. Of the year. And, and so that's the quality of, 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 of young men and women I had the privilege to work with when I was still in uniform. But there's a, the, the, the story I really want to share about Mark is, so Becky had already taken command of, the, of, of Bravo Company 112th, and I, uh, Mark was serving down in, our, we had st several detachments uh, um, uh, geographically placed throughout the, uh, throughout the world. And uh, Mark was in our, our, our pa what at the time was our Panama detachment. And I brought him up and uh, made him the first sergeant, so the senior enlisted uh, man, uh, officer, uh, senior non-commissioned officer in charge of Bravo Company. So that meant that Becky and Mark would be the, the, the command team. And on the first day of Mark uh, serving as the first sergeant of Bravo Company, 
Uh, now, I did not physically see this, but I sure heard the stories. He walks into the company headquarters. He takes off his fatigue blouse. He puts on rubber gloves. He takes every cleaning supply that they have in the company. He goes into the company bathroom and he cleans it from the, the top of the shower down to the toilet. And, and it, I mean, it is so clean. You can literally eat off the off, <laughs> off any part of that bathroom. And his whole point was, if I'm the senior non-commissioned officer in this in this company and i'm willing to do this there is nothing no task in this company that's that's uh that i'm above so i expect you to to do whatever you have to do to get the mission accomplished and i don't think you could have sent a more pristine more critical more poignant message to every man and woman in that company than what first sergeant clifton sent that day and and that's and i had the privilege to work with both becky and mark um, hey, Becky, I want to shift. Um, so yeah, yeah. You've, you've had well over 18 years of experience working on significant social change efforts in the not-for-profit or, or nonprofit space, which I find very fascinating in itself. So, and one of these efforts was finding uh, housing for well over 100,000 folks in, in, about, um, in about a four-year time period, and you succeeded, which is a monumental task. So tell us more about this program. And, and I'd also like to, because some of the folks that, that are listening, they may not know whether they want to work for a for-profit, a not-for-profit company, or an organization, and maybe just understanding what a not-for-profit organization is, how it works, and how you chose to, to, uh, to work in that area. That might be uh, very helpful to, to some of the folks in our audience. Absolutely. Well, I'll start with the nonprofit, and, and we'll include the, 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 what this campaign was. So... So yeah, when you get out of the military, there's there's a, there's you can be a a dot com, a dot edu, a dot org, or what's or a dot gov. <laughs> there's there's only so many choices, and and within the dot com, you can you could also hang out a shingle and work for yourself, or you could affiliate yourself with a company. Um, but the, the the main real difference between the, the nonprofit and the for profit, and the uh, the nonprofits or the dot orgs, is uh, two, there's two. One is that it's simply a tax status. All it means to be a nonprofit, you're still a company, you're still a corporation, you're organized as such. But the profits, instead of being distributed to shareholders, are, dis are reinvested in the purpose of the company. Um, and generally, all companies have a purpose, but generally the, the, the purpose of the nonprofit is usually to advance some, some social be benefit in some way. So there's a reinvestment into that. So it doesn't mean they don't have money. There's, there's a billion, trillion dollar. There's, there's, there's huge nonprofits that, that have tons of money. I think that we conflate that with some sort of scarcity. Uh, it's, it's, it's one out of 10 people in the United States workforce work for a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. It's a, a trillion dollar industry, I think. And, and so massive right and so uh lots of resources it's a huge part of the economy doing really big important things um and and the one that 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 i found myself in uh which so so grateful for that was working for roseanne haggerty and what was breaking then common ground now breaking ground and then i stayed with her as she uh f founded and, and formed uh, community solutions and uh the the just that that campaign just a little a post note to that so i worked on roseanne hired me to reduce street homelessness by two-thirds in three years and i remember one day telling her i was like you know if you hired the military to do this they get it done you may not like it but they get the job done you know <laughs> and it felt like a contrast to me to the other the ethos of of just it felt like playing kick the can 
you know, in the, in that world. And so bringing, injecting that mission, mission accomplishment ethos, uh, I think was, um, why Roseanne hired me, honestly. But I will say that I, I want to clarify one thing is I definitely didn't house under a thousand people. I coordinated an effort with 186 cities that they did, but a really interesting thing, Roseanne and the, the, the people at the, at community solutions, they just won the MacArthur, hundred million and change prize. They just won a hundred million dollar grant to continue wow. the work that they were continuing after I worked with them. It's the largest prize in philanthropy um, to advance that work and 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 homelessness completely in I think seventy some cities in the United States. So they're they're just going on to do really impressive things. They probably would hire be open to hiring veterans. <laughs> there's big, there's big work happening. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I don't know if did that answer your, your question or was there another point you wanted me to kind of focus on there? Um, no, I, I think that yeah. that is spot on. But maybe maybe um, um, talk a little bit more about the effort, the, the housing a hundred thousand homeless in you. Look, I, I remember listening to some of your keynote speeches. You used a term called uh, saying uh, housing is healthcare, and I think that's a, a, a really stuck with me. And maybe you can kind of explain that a little bit more. The, the, the passion you have and the reason you think it's it's so important to put these 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 homeless people into adequate housing to help them really recover and get a second mm -hmm. a second chance in their life. Yeah, yeah. So thank you for that um, uh, clarification. The When I first started working on homelessness in 2003, my mental model was, I guess I probably just need to help these people get a job uh, because that's the, that's, I don't know, that's the stories that had, I had consumed through whatever media or educational materials. And while certainly almost everybody I met on the streets um, wanted a job and wanted to find productive, meaningful work, uh, the first thing that comes, and, and Dr. Sam Sambaris invented this, this concept, is housing first, is that we worry about the housing first because there's no way, just imagine, that you could probably do all right in a tent for a little while, you know, but after a while, what starts to happen, especially if you don't feel safe, uh, is your, your, your mental health and your cognitive ability capacities really uh, take, a, take a big hit. Uh, and, and homelessness is, is, veterans are disproportionately, in many cases, impacted by homelessness. That's true. So Very we've got to look out for our brothers and sisters there. And um, when you're in that state for a long period of time, and I can't speak about it from first experience, but uh, there's just, there's this deleterious impact on your health. That's just undeniable. And, right. and that what we found from working with a doctor, Jim O'Connell in Boston, that uh, certain health conditions when, when paired with homelessness, puts you on a mortality risk on par with some forms of cancer, that homelessness is actually a, a lethal. It's, it's a, it, it enhances your likelihood for a premature death. I think the average age of people who are homeless uh, when they die is 55. I mean, it takes, it takes decades off your life. And so when, we, when I started seeing homelessness as a public health emergency, my approach changed. It wasn't like, oh, let's give someone some socks or, you know, that was never my approach, but that's some people's approach or let's, let's help it be more comfortable, which is sort of more palliative care because they're going to die soon. Uh, it was more like, hey, let's, uh, let's get them, let's change the situation and that the housing is in fact a health intervention. And for people who work in healthcare, I think it's well known that they talk about determinants of health, that there's 
all these things that make us healthy that have nothing to do with going to the doctors. Yeah, it's it's how we eat and our access to healthy food and if we exercise and if we have uh, our environments and, and, and all those things. So housing is absolutely one a, a powerful leverage point in terms of health, our health and well-being. And I think that's the people who are doing some of the more cutting edge work really see housing as a public health intervention. Yeah, I mean, the physical transformation that some of these folks I remember seeing you posted some uh, some pictures of some of the folks that you when you pull them off the street and then after even just a couple weeks in housing, the physical transformation was just absolutely staggering. And uh, maybe that's something that we could uh, we could also put links to some of these uh, some of these uh, keynote speeches in, in, in our show notes if we if we go that route. Uh, for anybody who has more interest in that, I really encourage you to to, to see what Becky has done in this area. I, I think it's just again, it, it is transformational. And uh, I, I know I personally appreciate uh, your commitment to this and, and the success that you had and the, and the changes you've you've literally changed people's lives and and helped them get a second chance in their life. I think, just think that's awesome. You know, one of the things I love about doing this show with Howie, Becky, is that, you know, in addition to hearing the stories of transition out of the military and what we've done, we get to hear the great work that people are doing, right? Um, the transformational work, if you will, that people are doing. And it's it's incredibly inspiring. And just hearing you talk about uh, the work there inspired me, right? So as Howie said, just echoing him, you know, I hope the audience, if, if you do take some interest in that, we'll put some links with the episode. Um, we are going to continue here on this episode of This Is Your Life. Uh, we've been through uh, the military. We've been through <laughs> some of the work you did outside of the military. But that, that brings us to the, to the modern times. And you started the Billions Institute uh, and co-founded the Social Change Agency. Um, so some of our listeners may be interested in how you took that next step uh, from working for other organizations to creating your own organization. So I do want to hear a little bit, obviously, about what the Billion Institute does, please, and then how you, started to st- how you decided to start that organization, excuse me, and then the steps you took to do it so as a, maybe a roadmap for some of the listeners. Yeah, I think personally, I mean, I think the U.S. tax code is pretty clear that it's, it's in favor of people being small business owners. And so if you've got right. a, a little sparkle in your eye about something you want to do, uh, there's, there's wind in your sails, right? Uh, and um, in terms of the co-founding of the Billions Institute, the, the, the history of in, in 2009, when we were making some traction on street homelessness, Roseanne introduced me to Don Berwick and Joe McCannon at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And so this, this connection between healthcare and housing was, was cemented early on for me. And uh, Joe was someone who had led a campaign to get thousands of hospitals to change their practices so they didn't accidentally kill people to the amount they were. He led a campaign to uh, prevent 100,000 preventable deaths in his young 20s. And and then he was my mentor. They seconded Joe to help me design and then then run the 100,000 Homes campaign, which was modeled off of the, the the bones, I guess, of what he had done, but in healthcare, it was a transition to that. So Joe and I, we were friends immediately, uh, recognized one another as kindred spirits all the way back in 2009. He went to go work for the Obama administration. Uh, he stood up the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation and did a lot with the, the rollout of Obamacare, which was really large scale change from a governmental perspective, while I ran the 100,000 Homes campaign. Towards the end of the 100,000 Homes campaign, a couple months left, I got an email from the people who run the TED Prize. 
And I don't know if, if you know the TED Prize, but it's, hey, if, give us your wish for the world in 50 words or less. And if we like your wish, if we like yours the best, we'll give you a million dollars to get going. I thought it was a practical joke from my colleagues. I thought they had gotten some, some Gmail address. I was like, very funny, you guys. Well, it turns out I really was a finalist for the TED Prize. And so <laughs> I had to come up with a wish for the world for 50 words or less. And I called, they said, you can call your friends. Don't put it on social media, but you call your friends. First phone call was to Roseanne. Second was to Joe. And I was like, Joe, you know they're going to want me to do something on homelessness, but I really want to help people in all sectors learn how to do change. And he's like, yeah, you're probably not going to get the tip prize for that. And I, and I was like, well, what, what do you want to do? And Joe had all these great, wonderful ideas of what he wanted to do. And I had the ideas of what I wanted to do. And that night I went home. I told my partner, I was like, you know, I don't think I'm going to win the TED Prize, but like, I definitely want to work with Joe. And the next day I called him and said, hey, you want to go into business together? And Joe was like, I was thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> so that's how the Billions is two got co-founded. And literally, and this is like, I don't know if this is luck or white privilege, but like Joe came over. He was in L.A. He lives in Boston. We met in our living room, basically. And we did this exercise called Rockin' Beginnings, developed by my friend Janet Parks. And the first question is, what's your high dream for what we might do together? And Joe was like, I don't know, like maybe in the next 20 years, help solve some of the world's biggest problems. And like, boom, we had a purpose. <laughs> and That's awesome. yeah. so, yeah, and the rest, the rest has, has continued. Um, but I guess if, if you're thinking about starting a business, I would highly encourage that. Um, and uh, Peter Drucker has this quote that the purpose of a business is to create and keep a, a customer. And like, I get it. I get it. But I think the purpose of a business really is to, to express your, 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 t your genius in the world in, in the, the least encumbered, fric most frictionless way so that you can be of service. I love so, that. So, and that there, there will, you will be able to find some market exchange that's going to help you go if it's a good business idea. But it's about the, the unoccluded expression of your genius um, and being of service. And a business is a great vehicle to do that. That is a beautiful way of looking at it. You know, <clears throat> I always love the question about creating your own business, uh, and we get some really great answers. We've had a few business owners on the show. Um, but the echo that I hear here is, and this goes right back to the military, is like, you know, you serve the people that you're involved with, whether that's your employees or your customers, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I never liked looking at the people that interact with my business as just customers. Yes, baseline, that's what they are. Uh, but they're not dollar signs to me. These are people loyal to my brand, to my purpose, and I want them to feel like they're part of that. And 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 Becky, I'm sure you'd agree. Please tell me if you don't. But I can almost guarantee that if you approach a business with that mentality, you you are going to succeed, um, as long as you have the right infrastructure set up. I mean, you agree with that, right? I do. And and it, 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 I was rereading this uh, Brian Tracy book, which how he turned me on to Brian Tracy in the '90s about. Um, you know, but most businesses that we don't have to date it. You don't have to date yeah, Howie yeah. like that. That's that's. Uh... Hey, I'm an old man. I, I admit it. Just look at me. Yes. We're all the old people club. But the, the, the most businesses that do ultimately succeed aren't doing the thing they were doing when they started, right? And right. so there's this right. constant, and, and it is through the attunement, through relationship to your customers of what do you need so that you can best serve them. I think that is what right. supports the 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 endurance of the company. And then uh, one more thing, Howie, if I may. Sure. Uh, something you're making me think about, Becky, and I actually didn't realize this until I started doing international commerce and speaking with people in other countries. But if you are a veteran that would like to explore entrepreneurship or starting a business, 
our country makes it incredibly easy to start a business compared to other countries in terms of the time it takes, the amount of money it takes, and really the red tape you have to walk through to do it. Uh, you could, in essence, have a business up and running in terms of the paperwork within 24 hours, which is really unheard of. And if you're a veteran, uh, there are so many programs, even Howie has explained this to me, to support you that mm -hmm. if it's something in your mind, because I've been thinking about this with our audience, if it's something like, ah, it's, it's a lot to do, it's too much to do, if you're passionate enough about what you want to do and you have the right pieces in place, it, it is not hard to create it. It might be hard to, to move forward from that point, but in order to create it, it is not hard to do. I agree. I think everyone should have a business just as a side hustle. And that's the social change right. agency. I was like, oh, yeah, we did that. But it was just a side hustle. And but you could also <laughs> I mean, not to like totally get like nerd out as an accountant, but you can you can legitimately run expenses through it. Uh, there's just ways that you can uh, optimize the resources you have towards towards right. the purpose that you want them to go towards. And the business is a vehicle for that. It's also a vehicle for providing the opportunity for others to experience right livelihood, which I, right. There's a, there's, to me, there's a spiritual dimension to that, that can I support others in, in experiencing right livelihood and myself as well, right? That, and if things go wrong, like, you know, I only have myself to blame. So I, I'm a big fan of, uh, of, yeah. of the small business for sure, yeah. Becky, we're hey, going to so, have to make another book for you called Side Hustle Saves Lives. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Lee's great at coming up with uh, book titles for our, for our podcast guests. So he, he, now he just has to be their co-author to get them to that's write That's going to be so. my shtick on this show. That's the guy that makes the book titles. That's right. This, this is about the third time he's offered a book title on, on our podcast. So I love uh, it. I love it. Yeah. So, so Becky, we, what I, one of the, the pieces of value that we hope to offer to our audience is not just for the military veteran who's going through the transition, but to flip the coin to the organization or the company or the corporate uh, environment, if, if they are hiring military veterans into their organizations, um, what can they do to receive that vet into the organization, help them adjust to their culture? So one is that I'd like you to talk about is how was that done for you? And look, it may have been things that were done well, maybe things that weren't done well, and both are yeah. very important um, um, experiences to share. But how were you welcomed into the climate and culture of the organizations you chose to work with after you got out of the military? And what advice would you give to, you know, again, organization leaders, owners, whatever, to, 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 to better transition military into their organizations? Yeah, so... That's a great question, and it is different. The civilian world is, as you know, very different, right? Um, a couple things. Uh, so, what what support I received? So, when I, my first job was as a stockbroker, and that's a very indiv sort of individualistic type of uh, profession. That there there are people who form uh, groups and and teams with financial planners and. Uh, the, the insurance and things like that, right, where they can do holistic financial planning. But the, the firm that I went to, it was a very reputable firm. I, I have tremendous respect for it. Um, there was no pressure or anything weird like that. But it was I was kind of on my own. And I had an office just kind of by myself with no windows. And, like, I didn't stay there long. And uh, um, But but the, the person who was my boss was a veteran as well. And it was the, the, the onboarding he provided was really just through quality time again, right? There wasn't anything super fancy. Um, but when I went to what was then Common Ground and worked for Roseanne Haggerty, uh, I experienced, again, 
the the joy of camaraderie and community and a sense of solidarity that felt familiar to the military sense of service and purpose and mission and and it was and that was communicated through retreats senior leadership retreats through uh social outings with my peers and colleagues that even though i think as sometimes as someone who's like serious and wants to get the job done the the the, the goof off time can seem uh, like frivolous, but actually I think it's really powerful for forming those secondary ties and those loose ties that support the work and getting done really well um, through uh, real mentorship and quality time together. Uh, and so I, it was it was really through one-on-one -on -one time that I learned kind of the way things worked. But I will say the way things work is really differently. Like, so, so I think by, I don't know if, it, let, let me, I guess let me t take a time out. So you want to know for like, what did I receive, but what advice would I give a company for how to help a vet on board? Sure. <laughs> okay. So, so I would tell them the things that nobody told me. <laughs> so, so maybe this is more directly to the vets, but here's, there's no NCOs in the civilian <laughs> sector, which, which is kind of how I got by, right? Like I think like, like the, the non-commissioned officers in the military take a tremendous amount of pride, rightfully so, in that they actually do the work. And so uh, and there's this division of labor among the commissioned and the non-commissioned corps that um, in the civilian world, everybody's kind of got to do everything, especially in the nonprofits in some ways, right? And so, uh, so in, in the military, I was always paired with a non-commissioned officer and, and we could play good cop, bad cop. We, you know, we could do all kinds of stuff, right? There's nobody do that with in the civilian world. And so uh, that was, it was, it took me a, like a year or two where I was like, oh my God, I don't have an NCO to work with. I don't, and, and that's an adjustment in and of itself. So be prepared. Uh, and, but you can replace that, I think, through close relationships with your colleagues, right, to, to, to invest in those relationships. Um, the, the biggest difference for me, the hardest lessons learned was in the military, the full ethos is retention. You know, you've got someone, you've got a soldier who's overweight, who's not passing the PT test, who can't shoot the broad side of a barn. You know what I mean? You do every, it's your job to help that soldier lose weight so that they can stay in the military and they can serve, right? And so there's this, uh, this extreme, I think, emphasis on retention and, and remediative work, right? Like, so, like, um, so I took that ethos into the civilian sector where I was like, nobody's going to get fired on my watch. And like, I'm, no, in the civilian world, we fire people and it's okay. And it's what happens. And so part of what I needed to learn how to do, and like I would suggest you teach veterans how to do and how to do well, is to know when to fire someone and how to do so compassionately right. and gracefully. And that is part of that is part of the churn of the civilian sector in a, in a different way. And what I was doing is I was holding on to people who actually weren't well suited for the work and it was cruel to them too, right? Because it's it, right. But because I had in my mind, my job is to keep them in there. So I think, I don't know, I, I, I have, I have one or two more, but I want to see if you two thought, if you two, <laughs> you know, is, 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 was I the only one? <laughs> <Was> <laughs> No, you're not the only one that experienced that. I can tell you that my wife experienced that um, on the way out. And, you know, one of the conversations that she and I have often is it's actually almost a little bit reversed from what you said is she used to, I remember early on after her tr transition in the military, she would say, well, what if I don't like it? What if I don't fit in? And I go, then you can quit. <laughs> and the thing is, is that, you know, and, and I admire her for this. 
But like that was not an option in her own mind right. she, because right. the military had taught her that. Right? right now, with that said, there's nothing wrong with with I shouldn't say quit, but there's nothing wrong with resigning from no. a job that you don't fit in and that you yeah. don't enjoy and that you don't want to do. Yeah. Um, but I remember I remember Becky is telling her that, and the look on her face of of like I there wasn't even an option. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. You know, yeah. And I I I just think that that um, it's such an admirable quality. Uh, of that, you said this several times to show that, like that never die, never give up attitude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But what I think people transitioning need to understand, and the businesses need to understand, is how big of an asset that can be for mm-hmm. your business. When you have someone that is willing to die, quote unquote, <laughs> for your business, yeah. you need to utilize that person the best possible way, yeah. right? And and really make them feel like they're part of it. To your other point of, you know, being paired with somebody. Uh, you know, I, I have a veteran that works for me and I, I constantly, as often as I can try and go down and just talk with him about his day, his family, he's got a newborn. Uh, can I assist you with anything going back to how your story about doing the, uh, cleaning the bathroom? Like, like I know how to do his job because I wanted to know how to do his job. I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm saying is that he knows I know how to do it and we're a team, right? From the CEO down to his level, we're a team. I don't look at it like that, but uh, yeah, no, just again, sorry, I'm, I'm digressing a little bit here, but yeah, yes, you can resign from a position you don't like and the military yeah. doesn't work that way. Cause your education might go with it. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So, but, yeah. uh, yes, you're not the only one that, that has mentioned something like that. And how, how to let someone go gracefully, I think right. is not something people know inherently. And because no. like when I first was in a situation where the obvious answer was to let someone go. I felt so much internalized shame myself. I was like, they're right. going to feel so ashamed about this. Meanwhile, it was, they were like, yeah, this sucks. I'm out of here. Like, I, like I was really doing them a favor, you know, I, but like, uh, like I held myself back from doing it for so long to the detriment of the mission and the company, right. because I was, I was like feeling their shame for them that they weren't feeling like, cause I thought this was bad, but it can actually be a really positive outcome when it's, when it's just not a fit. That's, that's just, you know, it's not a fit. It's okay. It's not, it's right. not personal. It's not bad feelings, you know? You know, if I may real quick on that one too, um, giving, giving the, 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 you know, the, the job side of this, right. The non-military guy side of this, I learned how to let people go when I was coaching college hockey. Um, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I was I was learning when you have to cut players that really worked hard to be on your team. Oh yeah. Um, you know, I really learned how to have to tell somebody you didn't you're not on the team, and that really prepared me for having to let people go in the civilian world. Um, and you know what I typically do again for any employer out there is I cl- you know I, I turn my emotions off. That's something you have to do. All right, yeah. like there's 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 no, it's never going to be comfortable. <laughs> So I kind of just turn my emotions down, I should say, not off, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I explain what's happening, why it's happening, make sure that I give them, you know, whether it's good or bad, the reasons of why it's happening. And then I often try and offer help. In, like, do you need help finding a, a direction mm-hmm. to look for another job? Uh, you know, what are the things that this is going to impact you? How can I help escort you to that next place mm-hmm. that you need to go uh, without sacrificing, obviously, myself or the organization? Um, that's not something a lot of people provide. It's usually just, uh, you know, you're terminated, goodbye, right? Yeah. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, and Becky, you know this, you might offer help to someone and they might tell you an expletive and leave the office and uh, that's not unheard of, right? But, you know, like you said, I need to feel like I'm in the position of, look, I'm doing this the right way for, for me and the company that, that goes along with the ideals that I have. Uh, and that mm-hmm. that's the process, right? 
But um, yeah, no, just uh, hey, listen, it's your last day today. <laughs> that's not that's not usually. I've had that. I've had that happen before. You know, it's today's your last day. Like, oh, okay. Yeah. No, it's horrible. It's horrible. And, and I think um, someone, a, a mentor of mine, once shared with me that if, if, as the owner, if I decide to let someone go, that and they were showing up and at least doing their best and trying in faith. She, she, this this consultant really put on my shoulders like, hey, you're the one who changed your mind. You're the one who changed your agreement, you know, and uh, yeah. you got to make sure they're set up. You can't if you cause financial harm to them, you know, that's on you. And I was like, oh, man, I never thought about that. And so th- that I do I do have a commitment to do no harm as long as there's good right. faith and it's not a fit that that's on me. I think there's some corporations that have, I think, extraordinary uh, they're like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to, I think what Netflix comes to mind where, uh, no harm, no foul, like, come on, come try it out. No harm, no foul. If you know, and, and we're, we'll be really generous to you on the way out, but we want people who are going to swing for the fences. So right. some cool stuff out there. Um, the, the last thing I'll just share is, is for, for, to tell your vet <laughs> that it's okay to ask for additional resources. So, um, <laughs> that, that I had in my, I went in, I, I had a little bit of a time in the stockbroker, but not, not not substantial. But I went straight from the military to a nonprofit, uh, and I, I assumed because I was in a nonprofit that there would be scarcity. That because you know I, we have these stories about there's not enough resources, and I didn't want to be a burden on anybody. So I I kept taking on more responsibility. Like yeah yeah I'll do it I'll do it I'll do it because I care and like stick it in my ruck and I'll just keep going. And at any given time I could have said. You know, an, an assistant would really be helpful <laughs> or or could I have a little extra money for such and such? And we probably could have worked it out. But I didn't know because in the military, I think our budgets are just kind of fixed. You just got what you got. You know, you run out of bullets, right. you go home from right. the range, you know, you like whatever food there is. That's why the officer eat less. And so the. um it's not that way in the civilian world. It's not necessarily fixed resources. Sometimes we have constraints, but. I just thought that my job was to make the best of what I had. I, it never right. occurred to me that I could ask for more. And and you can. You absolutely can. That's a great tip. That's a great tip for employers because I can tell you right now, employers don't think that people are selfless in the way that you're talking about, especially out of the military. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. with the same employee I was referencing a moment ago. Um, I remember we were talking about uh, rebuilding an area. And uh, to his credit, he was always looking for the most cost-efficient way. And I said, well, we, we can just buy this and this and that. And he goes – we can. Yeah. <laughs> just, he was shocked that I'd offered it. Um, I'm like, yeah, man, we, we have some money. We, that's the whole point. Yeah, we're a business. So, so I think that's a great point. And, and yeah. it, you're, you're proving it right. Like he didn't even think to ask, you know, do we have a budget for that? So yeah, great stuff. I have to remind myself as a business owner to spend money, you know, and, and, and to remind right. my colleagues, right. I'm like, I'm like, go shopping. Like, what do you yeah. need? What do you need professional development? What do you need to do stuff? And they're like, right. Oh, I found something really cheap. And I'm like, it doesn't have to be like, do, let's do right. right. Let's do right by you and by each other. Yeah. Absolutely. Howie, did you have the next question, or did I have the next question? Um, I well, I, I'm happy to <laughs> happy to. So I, I think we'll, we'll probably the last question, and and uh, maybe maybe the most interesting one for for our audience, given that pivotal moments, you know, as an overall organization is seeking to strengthen uh, strengthen mental fitness worldwide. Becky, how do you personally define? I'm not looking for a book, uh, a, a textbook definition, but yeah, yeah. how do you personally? But you'll get def- a title. I'll give you a title for that book. <laughs> I'll take if you that. Need a title. Yeah, no, go ahead. How, sorry. But how, how do you personally define mental fitness? And and maybe you can share with the audience some of the things you do to strengthen your own mental fitness. 
That's great. Hey, and are y'all hearing feedback? Is that or yeah? Is I, it, I, it, I, it, I apologize. So, I've got. I think I've got uh, our our lawn care service outside my house right now. Oh, and it, uh, it's so a that, live that, show. That it's might a live be, show. Yeah, they, they <laughs> obviously didn't get the memo that we were recording this uh, this podcast right now. Okay, so. that's cool. So they'll 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 tune that out or whatever. Okay, okay. Um, uh, mine's coming soon, so mine won't be here. I told mine to wait till ten thirty. Okay, so we're good. So how I, how do I define mental fitness and what do I do for my own mental fitness? Okay. Um, by the way, I just want to say I really love that as a purpose. I think it, it, even just as a name, it's very catchy. It should be a book, book title. You've got I'm sure there are many book titles in there. So for when I think of mental fitness uh, as separate from physical fitness or emotional fitness, that that what what comes to me is 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 the ability to to by choice decide what I'm where I'm going to put my energy and attention that I'm able that, that I have I can lift and shift where I'm where I'm putting my attention and that I can lift and shift the story I'm making up about an event because we're all just making up stories all the time and 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 giving things meaning that they don't necessarily have they're just everything that happens is neutral so my one of my things I live by is everything that happens is feedback and everyone is my ally even if they look like my enemy everyone is my ally and then how can we get moving on making the world a better place and so just this uh the ability to catch yourself in uh, a, in a spiral that's going in a, in a non-creative direction and a non-productive direction, and then bring yourself back to, with a new story to a new state of being, because I really do think we we create our state of being, um, and, and emotional emotions fit in, and, and our our wellness in our bodies fits into all this as well. But specifically, the ability to shift my attention. Which, by the way, ain't nothing. <laughs> that's like, <laughs> that's like, that's like super, super intense work to get able, be able to be able totally. to do that. You know, um, it's taken me years to be able to do that, ten percent of the time. You know, I mean, and so, but that's how that's how I think of it, and it's something I strive for. It's, it, 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 so, so you're you're curious how do how do I give myself mental fitness? Well, you, how do, you know, how do like, I attend to it? How do I work out at the mental fitness gym? Exactly. <laughs> I do a bunch of stuff to 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 tend to my own mental well being. Um, I think the the first thing is every year how you're going to chuckle. Uh, every year, my partner and I do a an exercise uh, on New Year's Eve because you know you want to party with us where we go through some of the questions that I read in, in the Brian Tracy book that you made us read in 90, in like 90, was it 95, 96? Um, and, and it's, and it's questions like, what would you do if you won the lottery? What would you do if you found out you only had six months to live? Those types mm -hmm. of purpose aligned questions. So I have, I have the hard copies going back to 2000 of my answers to those questions. Really? And so though, so that has been, yeah, so I have this, foundation of at least at least once a year giving myself a tune-up and the cool wow. thing is is most of those things that in 2000 i thought were just bananas that there's no way they've all come true no kidding and it's right. all come true it's all come, beyond my wildest expectations and stuff that i'll do like eight i'm like oh i didn't did that, do that for eight years later it's like i i said it and then i forget it and then eight years later i'm like oh i did that thing that back in 2004 was just a crazy idea. So I think that's the, the foundation for me is just kind of coming back home to, to, a, to, to alignment with, with, right. with what's coming through me. I think, um, I also then every day, uh, I read myself a reminder of who I am. 
it's, it's, it's a mindset check of, of who I am, what I'm about, what my values are, why I'm here. And, and there's this great thing. I learned this from a business coach of, that I have of it, it, the way it's phrased is, is I am this, like, this is who I am as a reminder. And without me, my family has this experience with me. My family has that experience without wow. me. Social change leaders have this, but with me, they have that. So I'm just teeing up what I'm here to do every single day. Um, and then every night I, uh, I end with an appreciation. I, I, I look for something that I'm really grateful for. I've been making a, a, uh, a word cloud of the things that I'm grateful for. And it's, 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 that's, that's part of my practice as well. Um, and, and then I think that, that, the, the main things I've been, that, that I do probably the, I, I have like a list of 10, but let me just share the, I think the most powerful thing that I do to, to support my own mental fitness is when I'm feeling the gur, you know, when I'm feeling stuck, when I'm feeling like life just, you know, handed me one, I, I have the presence of mind eventually and sooner rather than later, I'm getting quicker and quicker at it. You know, I'm taking it in, I'm facing what's happening being with what is, and then I'm shifting my attention to what can I appreciate right now. So I'm, I'm shifting my attention to appreciation. So we, we, I'll give, give you an example. We had, I'm the oldest of seven. I'm very, I feel very protective of my siblings. One of my siblings is struggling and in a way that I feel personally irritated with him as well. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I was grousing about that and gnashing my teeth and, you know, and like feeling upset about that. But the, all the rest of my siblings have come together to support to support that sibling. So I have that choice. I can pay attention to how irritating one of my siblings is being to me right now, right? Or I can put my attention on all the rest of my siblings coming together to, to show up with each other right. on their behalf. And so it's, it's literally in those micro moments when I decide, because I could go down that rabbit hole. Like if you ever want someone to complain with, like I could be, I'm really good at that, you know? Uh, or to like to figure out whose fault it is. I, I'm like, I've got an A plus in that in school, right? But this shifting of my attention the other way, that that is where my mental fitness lies, is in the noticing and then the commitment to do it. Because it is, you get adrenaline when you go down this this pathway, which is addictive right. and uh, not creative, but it, you get the, at least you get to feel self-righteous. But on this one, you get the oxytocin, you get the better, you get the better, you get the feel good stuff. And so that's that, I think, I think that, that, that key shift is where, where if I have any mental fitness whatsoever, it comes from that. And, and that is as a daily slog to, to do that. Right. You know, Becky, I think it's important to note for the listeners too, that, you know, we're living in a, a world right now with a media landscape that is just constantly, and I'm not just talking media on the TV, I'm talking all of it. Anywhere there's a screen is just spewing negative news, negative news, negative news. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying some of this stuff doesn't need to be reported. Uh, but what I am saying is that there is an incredible, incredible amount of positive, good news people, people really doing change like yourself, right, out there. Um, and it can be hard sometimes to get out of the, the funnel that we're, we sink in oftentimes mm -hmm. of negativity. And one thing I want to impress to the audience is that to change, to, to do that is a choice. And, and this is why I always say the choice to make the change is actually quite easy once you arrive there. But getting to the moment of that choice, something you've experienced multiple times in your life, is very hard. Right. It's a journey kind of to the center of the earth, if you will. Mm -hmm. But once you get there and you realize it, you go, no, I'm changing this now. 
And you do. It is that simple, right? Um, another thing, too, is you spoke about is just the, the power of the present moment um, and being in the present moment. You know, there's a great quote about, tell me the biggest problem right now in this moment, right? And there usually isn't one. I, and the, the, the quote continues, if there is one, it's probably a real problem. But there uh -huh. usually isn't a problem. You know, this conversation, this podcast is my, my life at this moment. Love my children, love my wife, love my family. But this is reality right now. Yeah. Uh, and so often people get lost in the past or they get lost in the, in the future of their lives. Mm -hmm. Just focus on where you're at at this second if you're listening to this podcast, you know. Um, and the last thing I want to comment on, Becky, and in, in, uh, this, you know, just to, to um, further prove your point, you know, we've spoken to, again, many people on this podcast. Every one of them, every successful person and how we've been here for every one of them, they have something that they do. They have something that they do. We had one person who does a vision board. You have a notebook where you keep mm -hmm. your goals every year. Uh, I think there's this stigma when it comes to mental fitness uh, or even a saboteur in the brain that goes like, I don't need to do that. I don't need to do that, right? Well, we're telling you that every successful person that we know does something like that, right? They, they get over that, that voice in their head that says, I don't, I don't need to do that, right? Uh, you do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? We all do. We all need to do something like that, you know, so break that stigma, jump over the hurdle and find whatever works for you. It, 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 it's going to be something different for every person, but uh, statistically proven that if you write out your goals or you do something like that, statistically proven, you have a far more uh, a positive chance of accomplishing those goals than if you don't. That is, that has been researched. It is well known. And you have done that. Many times over. I want to make sure that I give you the last word. I did just riff there for a few minutes. No book titles in that one, but I did talk for a minute there. So any, any last thoughts on that? No, I think, I think you nailed it. It's, that's, that's where it's at. And, and, right. It, it, and and, um, and I, I just want to express in, in my mental fitness appreciation for Howie for modeling, modeling that and, and for being the kind of leader that, that I was – it was he I was always like, What's he up to? And curious of what he was doing. <laughs> and 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 we would joke around and call him the touchy feely ranger. Because <laughs> he, I mean he's a ranger. This guy's a ranger. It's a, it doesn't get more yeah, tougher. Yeah. Like what is it? He like eats nails and poops rust, you know? I mean this guy's as tough <laughs> as it gets. And he was having us read these like, you know, like self improvement books. <laughs> and, was, and, and thank you. I don't thank you enough, Howie. And and like so much that has happened in my life has come from the influence that you've, you've had on me and we don't get to go back and thank people enough either. So I'm just forever, forever grateful for having the opportunity to have uh, you're, you. You're way too kind and you're, you're absolutely giving me way too much credit, Patty, Becky. You, uh, what you've accomplished in your life is because of the type of person you are. And, and I just want to, I just want to thank you personally, professionally, on behalf of myself, Lee, and uh, and the folks at at Charlie, Mike, and Pivotal Moments for for accepting our invitation to be on this podcast, it's been exceptional. Um, I think this is actually, and and you know, it's interesting. I think this is actually the longest one we've done, and it's the one that's gone so quickly. Um, I cannot believe that 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 uh, that we've gone through this that quickly. Um, it, yeah. I, I hope. That our audience gets as much out of uh, much value out of this as, as I did, and uh, and I just thank you for sharing your your experiences and stories with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
I hope this helps yeah. a lot of veterans. And, and I'll ask, can I say one more thing? Don't stop Absolutely. doing PT. Yeah. Don't stop doing PT. <laughs> it's way easier to stay in shape than it is to get yeah, in that shape. Is the That's our next show. It's PT with Howie and Lee <laughs> on Pivotal Moments. Uh, uh, Becky, I want to thank you so much for being on today. Uh, you've been a gift. And you've also given me the gift of calling Howie the touchy-feely ranger from now on. Uh, that's how I'll be <laughs> introducing him on uh, the Howie. show moving forward. <laughs> Uh, and he won't give you credit for that either. No, I'm just kidding. This this has been wonderful. I think uh, that so, was Brett Reister. I think Brett Reister said that. He yeah. he says it to you. You say it to him. I, I probably need <laughs> yeah. to get the two of you together, and we'll we'll figure this one out. <laughs> Prisoner's change dilemma. The, <laughs> change the show name to the Touchy Feely Ranger. No, we won't do that. But I will say that you've been listening to Crossing the LD, which is powered by the nonprofit Pivotal Moments, and you can learn more about the organization at pivotalmoments.org for inspirational content, education, or if you'd like to donate. Uh, for Becky Margiata, Howie Cohen, the Touchy Feely Ranger, I'm Lee Elias. Thanks so much for joining us, and make sure to keep an eye out for more episodes soon wherever podcasts can be heard. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Have a great day, everybody. <laughs>